Chapter Fourteen of the Fairy of the Snows by Francis J. Finn, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Fourteen, The Fairy of the Footlight dazzles David Riley, and in conjunction with Alice Morrow, practices up-to-date asceticism. In the meantime, the communion class was going on day after day with what appeared to be most edifying results. The boys and girls, especially the very small ones, were quick and responsive. Every Saturday it was a touching sight to see toddlers of six and seven, both boys and girls, attending the seven o'clock mass of their own initiative, and without the guardianship of the nuns and brothers. The teachers, too, reported the marked change for the better, both in lessons and conduct, which they observed in their little charges. Among those who were especially mentioned was Elsie Morrow. The mantle of little Margaret seemed to have fallen upon her. In course of time, she came to rival her sister Alice, not only in conduct and attention, but also in quickness of grasp. Three weeks before the great day, there came to my office a girl and a little woman, who proved to be her mother. My heart sank on seeing them. Every morning for a period of over ten days, I had been pestered with women from other parishes who wanted to get their children at the eleventh hour in the class of the six hundred. Here, I thought, is another. Good morning, father, said the little woman. My name is Mrs. Elwood, and this is my little girl, Grace. How do you do, father? said little Grace, a child dainty in dress and carriage, and strikingly pretty. The pleasure is mine, I said. Father, continued Mrs. Elwood, I understand that you are preparing a class for First Communion. So you found it out at last, have you? I said. The people who were just hearing of the existence of a class, already under instruction for five months, was getting on my nerves. "'I just came to town two days ago, father,' said Mrs. Elwood. "'Oh, I beg your pardon. But all the same, it's too late to put your little Grace in a class that's been going on since January.' "'Perhaps it is, father,' and the poor woman looked disappointed, and perhaps, I imagined it, sighed. "'Oh,' said I, beginning to realize that it was rather brutal, and touched also by the evident dismay which had come upon Grace's face. Perhaps I have been hasty, and has your little daughter had any religious training? Oh, yes, father, put in Grace. I was preparing in Pittsburgh for about three months, and Mama and I had to go away last week, just ten days before the children were to make their first communion. Come into my private office, I said. On examining Grace, I found that she was really well instructed. Why, Mrs. Elwood, I said, this child is fit to make her communion now. I knew it, I knew it, cried Grace with evident joy. Mama, I said all along that Father Carney would let me in his class. Hold on, I said. Where do you live, Mrs. Elwood? Wherever we check our trunks, she answered with a touching smile. Oh, and where are you staying just now? At the Denison. Very good, that's in our parish. Well, if you stop checking your trunks for three weeks longer, it will afford me great pleasure to have Grace make her communion with the class of St. Xavier. Thank you very much, Father. It takes a weight off my mind. I really had to leave Pittsburgh. It was a case of necessity. We ran out of work there, and there were several good engagements offered me in Cincinnati. Engagements? I echoed. May I ask what you are doing? We are actresses, put in Grace. We are the Elwood sisters, song and dance artists. Aren't we, Mama? And how do you like the profession? I asked Grace, looking at the child with renewed interest. Oh, I've been so long at it, I'm tired of it, she said with a gesture perfectly expressive of weariness. How long have you been at it? 
Five years. And how old are you, Grace? I'm ten years old, father. Good heavens, I exclaimed. It was quickly settled that Grace should call at my office every morning at ten on the chance of her getting an opportunity during the ensuing hour of receiving a little private instruction. I cautioned the child not to speak to the other children about her profession, a caution entirely unnecessary, and finally put her in the hands of Alice Murrow, who was to entertain her after the morning instructions and on such other occasions as should arise. To Alice alone, of all the girls, was confided the secret that there was in our class a professional actress. The usually stolid Dave, who paid no attention, as a rule, to visitors, was all alive with interest on the occasion of my introduction to the two who lived where they checked their trunks. Before we retired into the inner office, David had, during my short conversation with them, kept his eyes steadily on both. There was a certain awe upon his features, indicated by an open mouth and a rigid stare. As I showed my two visitors out of the office, David jumped from his chair, a thing I had never known him to do unbidden, and hurrying to the door, held it open. He also held his mouth open, and his eyes followed with a rare constancy every move of Grace Elwood. Grace caught his stare as she neared the door. "'Are you Father Carney's clerk?' she asked, smiling into David's face. David, clinging to the door, drew back as far as it was physically possible to go, and at bay in the corner replied, "'I'm only his office boy, ma'am.' "'My name's Grace,' said the little miss, moving a step nearer to the manifest dismay of the office boy, who was edging behind the door. "'Oh, is it?' As the two went out, David, instead of closing the door on them, followed them into the vestibule, and again allowing his jaw to drop, craned his head forward and continued to stare to such an extent that his eyes struck me as being in danger popping out of his head. "'David,' I called, Perhaps you'd like to follow those two down the street, would you? Yes, father, said David, re-entering the office with one last, long, lingering look. I would. Perhaps that little girl's your long-lost sister. No, father, answered David, in whose face still remained evidence of unusual excitement. Father, he continued with unconscious sarcasm, you can't lose my sisters. Father, that little girl is an actor. Oh, she's an actor, is she? Who told you? I heard her and the lady talking about an engagement they were going to have next Saturday and Sunday night at the theater in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. You appear, David, to be singularly interested. What's the matter? Father, I never saw an actor before. Have you never been to the theater, David? Oh, yes, Father. I saw two shows. I saw Uncle Tom's Cabin and The Midnight Express. I thought you said you had never seen an actor. Oh, I saw them on the stage, but I didn't know they went around like other people. Indeed. Well, David, I suppose you intend to tell the Fifth Street crowd that you have seen a live actress. Yes, Father, at noontime. Can you keep a secret, David? Yes, Father. Very good. Tell no one that Grace Elwood is an actress. She is here to make her first communion and wants no publicity. Grace was punctual each morning. Besides coming to the school office, she and her mother were seen daily at the children's mass. One thing struck me from the first. Grace was never alone. Whether in church or on the street or in my office, the vigilant Mrs. Elwood was always beside her. Mrs. Elwood practiced what the mothers of all juvenile actresses professed to do. She never left the child unattended. As a result, the little actress was as innocent, as frank, as winsome, and as unsophisticated as a child in good surroundings and under the care of a good mother. Although Grace was awaiting my pleasure in the outer office, 
Each day from ten to eleven, it was only for a few minutes, snatched from imperative duties, that I was able to instruct her. But time did not appear to hang heavy on her hands. She flitted about, like a butterfly, from office to music room, alighting to continue the figure, now on the piano, where she picked out tunes rather cleverly, now on the library shelves, where she examined books with pictures, and now on the typewriter. David she kept in a state of perpetual excitement. The youth in her presence unbent very much. Not content with following her flight in a perpetual stare, he smiled on her now and then, as I noticed, with mild surprise. As for Grace, she made herself quite at home with David, chattering at him, making him explain the workings of the typewriter to her, and unceremoniously driving him from his seat, taking his place and beating out with grim determination her own name and David's in capital letters, while David stood by with a look, as who should say he was entertaining an angel and was aware of it. So friendly did the young couple become that Mrs. Elwood, seated in a chair, reading a book, would at times raise her voice against the overgrade vivacity of her little daughter. In the communion class, Grace was quite different. All her vivacity was gone. She was as quiet and demure as any girl, and that is saying a good deal. Could be, and it is doubtful whether a single boy and more than a handful of the girls were aware of her addition to the ranks of the six hundred. Alice Morrow, quite proud of being delegated by me to take care of her, was extremely attentive to the child. Not content with the ordinary civilities, she showed Grace all over the school from basement to hall, explained to her the different grades and divisions, and so impressed Mrs. Elwood that that solicitous mother, after the first few days, was content to stay in the office when, and so long as Grace was in the hands of the enthusiastic Alice. Although there was quite a difference in their respective ages, the two, I fancy, must within the first twenty-four hours of their acquaintance have vowed eternal friendship. In each other's company they chattered like Tennyson's brook, and having exchanged with each other all the secrets they happened to possess, proceeded each of them to make up new ones, and thus kept burning the fires of friendship. Before the third day was passed, they were both wrapped in mystery. Every now and then, during a brisk and animated conversation, they would exchange dark looks and mysterious signs. And failing, as was generally the case, to make themselves understood, would retire apart out of earshot of Mrs. Elwood and the marveling David, where they each would take turns in whispering into each other's ears. Not content with this form of converse, they at times, within striking distance of each other, wrote notes. In which case David, the mystified, was called upon first by Grace, and seeing how submissive he was under the treatment, subsequently by Alice, to carry these communications, with strict injunctions of care and secrecy, from one to the other. Nor did this effusiveness of youthful affection seem to interfere in the least with her devotions. After the eleven o'clock class, the two having spent five minutes or so in the exchange of secrets and signs, was sally forth with great dignity to St. Saviour Church for a visit. Generally they were standing on the top step at a quarter to twelve, waiting to greet me with lively gestures of welcome as I passed the church on my way to dinner. Happening to leave the office on two or three occasions a little before the third quarter struck, and passing through the church, I was pleased to observe that each, kneeling devoutly with clasped hands, and oblivious of each other, was really tremendously in earnest. In the afternoon the head sister had each day a special session of the girls belonging to the communion class. To this did Grace without fail repair, after which she and Alice would, following some open chatter and more whispered secrets, seat themselves in the outer office, one at the table, the other at the desk, and write each other lengthy notes. 
None of us ever saw these notes, nor could wild horses drag them from the two friends. Not even an inkling of their contents was ever vouchsafed us. The exchange of notes accomplished, the little spring maidens, after bestowing a word on Mrs. Elwood, David, and myself, just to show that they had not forgotten us, would both, often in the same breath, declare that it was high time for their afternoon visit and way of the cross, whereupon they would issue forth and remain absent for a good half-hour. Violent as their love appeared to be, it must be said, in justice to the fairy of the snows and the fairy of the footlights, that their love really did in higher love endure. A little more, and the fairies, so it seemed, would become angels, angels at least in innocence, and in a joy which found itself deeply rooted in the supernatural. To me their innocent and heart-pulled devotion to our Lord was inexpressibly touching. To David it was a source of unfailing amazement. Together, Grace and Alice read, or rather, Alice did the reading, a book entitled Maidens of Hallowed Names. They had not gone far in these charming sketches of holy virgins, when both were for becoming saints out of hand. Alice was for wearing a hair shirt. Grace favored the use of the discipline, which, in her ordinary conversation, she was pleased to call a cat o' nine tails. The difficulty of getting these instruments of penance, together with some discouraging criticism from Mrs. Elwood and myself, brought them to a compromise on abstentation from cake, candy, ice cream, and pickles. Alice was against the embargo on pickles, but Grace insisted and carried the day. The fairies discussed their plans for sanctification in my presence with great freedom. Encouraged to this, I take it, by the fact that I, hypocrite that I was, made as though I paid no attention to their words. Seated at my desk, making pretense of reading or writing, I listened to discussions on the ascetic life, which would have astonished Rodriguez, and other immortal authorities. Vigils were taken up and set aside. Fasting was given more attention. They were quite serious on this point, and Alice was careful to point out to Grace the clear difference between fasting and abstinence. Both resolved that with the approval of their confessor, they would abstain on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays in general, and during Lent, all days, Sundays included. Also, that they would fast on all Fridays of the entire year. The pathos of it all was that Alice, without knowing it, was up to this period of her life, practically fasting and abstaining from the first of January to the last of December. I have an idea that these noble resolves were sternly undone by their confessor. I was their confessor. Finally, the retreat. Three days of silence and prayer was at hand. When the fairies were around, you could almost feel the silence. There was silence in their steps, silence in their expressions, in their carriage. They simply radiated silence. And when David, in an unguarded moment, gave them a jovial good morning, you should have seen the indignant looks with which they stabbed the thoughtless offender. On the morning of the last day of the retreat, I was informed by David that Alice and Grace were outside and wanted each to see me privately. And father, added David, Alice says it's very important. Send in the nearest, David. Grace entered. Well, my little friend, I said, sit down. Grace climbed into a chair, and turning in her toes, which just contrived to touch the floor, presented to me a face as solemn as David Riley's. "'Father,' she said, "'I've been reading the lives of the women saints. That is, Alice has been reading them for me.' "'So I noticed, Grace, and I trust it has done you good.' "'I hope so, Father. We've both been thinking a good deal, and I've been trying so hard to be a good little girl.' "'Yes, I see that.' "'But it's my past that is worrying me.' continued the fairy of the footlights, turning in her toes to a most extraordinary angle. "'You're past,' I gasped. "'Yes, I've been thinking of leaving the stage, and leading a life of what you call it, 
a penance in a cave. The way some of the great women penitents did? I inquired with a straight face. Yes, father, I've been very wicked. Sometimes I won't get up till Mama shakes me, and I used to hurry through my prayers and skip some. And then, father, the way I used to talk back to my mother. It was shocking. And, father, I'm so proud and vain. I just love to be praised. So do I, I said in parentheses. I see how bad I've been now, continued the fairy, crossing her knees and looking earnestly at the ceiling. I never thought I was so bad. Of course, I didn't intend to commit any big sins. So you want to lead the life of a penitent? Yes, father. What are you going to do with your mother? Oh, I didn't think of that. Your penance, my little girl, will be to honor and obey your mother till you grow up, and then, if I'm around, you may come to me for further advice. But, father, about those sins of my past, I didn't really intend to commit mortal sins. And be sure, Grace, that you didn't. Think less about your past and more about the Christ you are to receive tomorrow, who was himself a child as you are. As regards penances, never do anything without asking your mother or your confessor. Thank you, father and the fairy, breaking into smiles, which expressed the passing away of a host of scruples, uncurled herself, hopped to the floor, and skipped from the room. Then entered Alice. She too had fought, it would appear, with lions and tigers of the spiritual world. Father, I have been looking over my past in the bitterness of my soul. Good gracious, I exclaimed, and you have been making choice extracts from some of your spiritual readings, haven't you? I did see that in a book admitted Alice, and it fits my case perfectly. Good gracious, I exclaimed once more. Father, I have been a terrible hypocrite all my life, went on the angel of the snows. A hypocrite, I echoed. Yes, and a liar. St. Augustine wasn't near so bad as I was, and he said, so small a boy, so great a sinner. I know you pretty well, Alice, and I don't see that you are either a hypocrite or a liar. Ah, oh, that's just it, Father. I fooled you. When I found out that Papa was drinking, I kept it a secret from you. I don't blame you, my dear. Neither does Mama. She told me not to let you know. People, I observed, are not hypocrites when they don't go around and tell other people's sins. But, Father, I was always dodging so that people wouldn't know what was the matter at home. Look how kind Miss Margaret and Miss Teresa were to us, and for ever so long we kept back the truth. And then, Father, I'm just worried sick about that lie I told you. Father, I'm beginning to think it was a mortal sin. Was it, Father? Then I thought to myself, the nearest thing to a mortal sin on that memorable occasion was not the lie which Alice told, but the cruel and angry words I had spoken. No, my dear, I answered. To begin with, you didn't think at the time you were committing a big sin. Father, broke in Alice, I really didn't know what to say or do. It is an awful hard thing for a little girl to say that her father was drunk. It, it humbles. And then Mama told me over and over that I should not let you know anything about it. It would take the wisdom of an older head than you had then, said I, to get out of such a situation. Don't bother about that point any more, Alice. I'll not, Father, but that's not all. All my life I've been pretending to you that I'm serious, and I'm not. Father, I'm full of frivolity. Good gracious, I said for the third time. Yes, Father, I like to play tricks. So do I. And I love to tease people. So do I. And I do so like to be admired. You do? Yes, it's terrible. 
Alice, tell me, do you do anything foolish, or that you think wrong to gain admiration? I think not, father. That is, I... To be safe, father, I'll say yes. Instead of trying first to please men, my dear, try always to do first what you think will please our Lord, and then you needn't worry. Is there anything else, Alice? Yes, father. How can we cure papa? I have prayed and prayed, and so have mamma and Elsie, and we never know what's going to happen to him on Saturday night. It's a sad case, Alice, your father. Your father, I'm afraid, can't help himself entirely. There was a time when he could, but that time seems to be past. He feels his weakness very keenly. He has come to me several times to tell me how hard he is fighting. Alice was weeping. Poor Papa, she sobbed. I'd give my life tomorrow to cure him, and I'm going to offer up my first communion for him, and that ought to count. It certainly should, said I. And today, this afternoon, continued Alice, growing suddenly radiant, I'm going to make my general confession. And when I think of a general confession, Father, do you know what I think of? What, Alice? Of the text, Thou shalt wash me, and shalt be whiter than snow. This afternoon I hope I am going to have a soul. Think of it. Whiter than snow. And the fairy of the snows was gone. Good gracious, I cried for the fourth time and would fain have lapsed into meditation on holiness and innocence, had not David interrupted me with the information that the outer office was filled with first communicants who wished to see me privately, and, as some put it, on important business. End of chapter 14 Recording by Maria Therese